0: Is there any work that can save? Something that we already answered, the question, answered the, gave an answer to the question earlier. Is there any work that can save? Another way to ask the question is where does obedience fit in the life of faith? Where does obedience fit in the life of faith? Well, we are in the book of Genesis looking at particularly the life of Abraham. So Genesis chapters 12 to 23. And we see here, Abraham is a model for us of what it looks like, even though he might struggle, what it looks like to live a life of faith and not by sight. But you have to ask the question, well, where does obedience fit in the life of faith? Especially because we know that it is by faith that Abraham was justified, that he was saved or declared righteous. Today we are in Genesis chapter 15 and a main point, at least in relation to obedience, if we're learning about God here, if we're learning about God, we could say that the main point is that God's call to faith, as we see today, is always accompanied by a call to obedience. Always. God's call to faith is always accompanied with a call to obedience. If if we're looking at it from our perspective, so our own lives, we could say that faith in God is always to be followed by obedience. Faith in God is always to be followed by obedience. Work is evidence, right, of genuine faith. So we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 17. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to look at an explanation of the passage. And then we're going to move to a brief application at the end. So typically application, at least when I preach, is sort of woven throughout. We're going to do things slightly differently here. Explanation and then move towards um, application. And frankly speaking, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about some things that are potentially, potentially quite awkward. This is actually all about circumcision. Circumcision. So if you're, a med- if you're of a medical background, then you're like, oh, this is kind of normal. But if you're not, this can kind of seem more. If you're visiting and you're sort of new to Christianity, this can seem like, you know, kind of bizarre here. But nevertheless, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, so we're just going to preach right through it. So we have this chapter here about circumcision, and it, in fact, is useful to us. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at verses 1 to 3 here. We can kind of see that this focus here is really about who this God is, as God moves to confirm his covenant that he had already given to Abraham in chapter 15, and that he had given those very promises of the covenant even further back in Genesis chapter 12. So you have promises of the covenant in chapter 12. You have the official cutting of the covenant as he's making promising Abraham all of these things, and God is so dead serious in fulfilling his promises. That he has Abraham go through, Abraham at that point in time, go through this little ceremony of splitting these animals, lining them up side by side so that there's a pathway of blood. And what would happen, it's like if we were to make a covenant of blood, you know, we're going to prick our fingers and then we're going to shake on it. That's a covenant sealed in blood. That's what God has Abraham do here. But the thing is, is that God himself promises and keeps both ends of the covenant. So he says, as God walks through the pieces of those animals in Genesis chapter 15, the blood covenant, he says, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And he says, Abraham, I got this. You want to know how serious I am about fulfilling my promises to bless you, to make you a blessing to the nations, to give you, to make you a father of a multitude and to give you the land. He says, I'm going to do it all for you. That's just the kind of God we worship. Look there in verse one here. This is the confirmation of the covenant. When Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram. Now that is incredible there. The significance here is not that he is old, although he certainly is old. That's not the main focus here. The fact, the, the the significance here is that he's been waiting for that long. He's been waiting for God to fulfill his promises. People that was the first promise. Then he had a promise of land. Then he, then he had a promise that one from his line would be a blessing. That he himself, so to speak, would be a blessing to the nations. He's been waiting since Genesis chapter 12 when he was 75 years old. So there's only almost a quarter of a century. God, uh, Abram here is sitting around waiting for God to fulfill his promises. How's your faith going? I mean, Abram here, he's waiting for a quarter of a century Wondering, at times I think whether or not he is going to fulfill his promises. And then look there in Genesis chapter sixteen, verse sixteen. Um, impatience you can tell is taking over. Right, he's waiting for a really long time. And in chapter sixteen, he, he he and his wife Sarah they wrongly try to force God's hand to begin the sort of domino process to make God fulfill his promises. And so they come up with their own plan and they say, okay, you know what? Me and Sarah, Sarah, we can't have a child. So, hey, here's my maidservant, Hagar. And eventually their plan works, or so it seems. The problem is that it isn't according to God's revealed will. And at that point in time, even though they don't have a child the way that God had told them he would bring about a child, it says there in Genesis 16, 16, Abram was 86 years old. So at that point in time, he waits uh, you know, for a really long time. Finally, they come up with this plan. The plan doesn't really work. And then in Genesis chapter 17, here he's 99. So they have to wait an additional 13 more years. Ishmael, whom they had in the last chapter, he's now 13 years old. And our passage finds Abram and Sarai in the middle once again of waiting on God. But God in his grace again comes to Abram. He says here, I am God almighty. We looked at this name before and this name really carries with it the significance that God is over all of creation. The very creation that he had made. He creates and he possesses it, all of it. So in Genesis chapter 12, when when Abram is really doubting and he wants a sign, God brings Abram out to behold the stars. Yes, that they are many, but more importantly, that he is the God who made them. And just as he created all those things from nothing, so he's going to create one individual child from Abram and Sarai, even though they are barren. God is transcendent above his creation. He is Lord of his creation. God is the God of the heavens who owns everything and has the right to everything. But here we see that this God, this great magnificent God, is also the God who draws near to his people in their waiting. So what does he say? He tells them, I am God Almighty. He gives them two commands. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. So here we see that this God Almighty is doing and commanding what only God Almighty does. He commands them. And he calls them to do these two things. And it's important to realize here that that God had created man in the beginning, right? Adam and Eve. And they were supposed to be in relationship with him. And they were his vice regents or his representatives of the world. They were made in his image. And so as they were to exercise love to one another and care for God's creation, they were very much like little kings of the great king. And when all of creation was supposed to see Adam and Eve, they were supposed to see a little bit of God himself. And that's actually what God is doing with Abram here. He's recreating his people by using this, formerly, uh, this guy who had grown up in a former pagan background and this barren woman, and he is going to recreate a people who seek to serve him. Because we know that Adam and Eve in the beginning, just like us all, failed to obey God. Instead, they sinned. They were supposed to be little kings of this great king, but they sort of wrestled their own autonomy, if it were even possible, away from God Almighty. And so they did what they wanted to do. That's the very essence of sin. It's rebellion against God. It is, in fact, treason against God if he is the king. So he says here, Abram, you will be my representatives. First, walk before me. And this, 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 uh, this description of walking, really, that just describes all of life. He's saying, in all of your life, in all of your walkings, you walk before me. When this is used of God, this walking aspect, as He goes before His people, uh, here we can think of protection and guidance. But then when it's used of man, here men are to be used as God's diplomatic representative. They're supposed to represent God in all of our dealings, in all of our walkings. Like in Hacienda Heights, over this last week, as you interact with folks at the hospital giving birth and the nurses who are serving you. If you go to Starbucks here, you are walking before God in all of our aspects, all the aspects of our lives, representing his righteousness, his blamelessness, his holiness. That's why he says there, secondly, be blameless. He's not so much saying, you know, you should be perfect. Certainly God demands perfection, but here it's not so much that they should be perfect. This is more like walk uprightly, walk above reproach. And this here is in direct uh, connection with the fact that God's intention for Abram was that he would be a blessing to the nations, bringing God's blessing to the nations as his priest. And then you've got the purpose there as the word continues. It is that God may make my covenant between you and may multiply you greatly. Now this here says make my covenant. So you might be wondering, okay, is God giving, is there two covenants here? Because he had cut or established a covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Here he is seen to make a covenant. Actually, that language make my covenant, it doesn't mean that you're, you're starting something new. It just means that God is, is, is making this thing with this person, but it's not necessarily new. The language of newness or formal establishment or cutting a covenant that's used in Genesis chapter 15. That's why we got the promises given of the covenant in 12. We have the cutting or the formal establishment with the ceremony of the cutting of the pieces. That's in Genesis chapter 15. And then in 17, we have a confirmation. And here we have this general language, right? We have general language like make or give. So God the Almighty Himself draws near to Abram, tells him once again, announces that He's going to do this for Abram, all by His grace. And Abram's response is to fall on his face before God, before El Shaddai. That's the name there, God Almighty. That's translated into English. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face he's before the creator of the universe again in his grace god is drawn near to him and then he moves the, the passage moves from verses 4 to 21 god here gives his promises in the beginning and the end they concern first abram and then sarah in the middle you have the covenant requirements so let's go ahead and look at the, the covenant promise reiterated to abram i'll go ahead and read verses 4 to 8 to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. He's received the promises before, actually. You know, father of a multitude, father of nations. It's very similar to what God had promised him earlier. But here what God does in doing something a little new is he changes Abram's name to reflect The realities of the covenant. Now, I'm sure in those days, some of them, we must admit, in, in, let's say, the quarter of a century, he's been waiting. I'm sure he struggled with unbelief. He probably thought this was, again, all part of God's cruel joke at times. Why is that? Because the name Abram, as we mentioned before, means exalted father. Exalted father. And there is tragic irony here, as commentators note. I mean, for 86 years, he has the glorious name, exalted father, but is the father of none. I mean, can you imagine getting married? Right? 86 years old. You know, after you get married, you're 86 years old. You don't have any children. You're expecting to have children. And then every time someone says, hey, Abram, hey, Abram, you know, you have a constant reminder through your own name of your inability, your lack of ability basically his impotency and then at 86 sarai gives birth to ishmael and and uh or sorry hagar gives birth to ishmael and he goes from being a father of none to exalted father of one and then for 13 more years right he knows that they're going to have a child he and sarai but again he only has one child exalted father and then you know god comes to him here and he says i will make you exceedingly fruitful but yet all he has to show for his fruitfulness that God has promised him is just this one child from a maidservant whom God says, no, he's not. this guy's not going to be your heir. So he changes his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude or father of nations. Now, of course, God sees what Abram cannot see in the moment. And so once again, he's left... Uh, needing to trust to have faith in god and not to walk by sight and god says offspring shall come i'll make you so fruitful you won't even believe it if you could see it offspring will come from you kings shall come from you and what does he do with these promises i would be tempted to at least i would be tempted to say okay you know there goes god again (laughs) talking about all those promises and he's given to me over and over and over again. It's been the quarter of a century and yet nothing's really been done. But never, never mind what Abram thinks. Or Abraham, as he's known now, because God is a God who promises, but a God who actually keeps his promises. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now, you can imagine, you know, we have little faith sometime, even though we might come to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus. We can imagine here that while we might doubt and, you know, sometimes we go back and forth between doubting, but God never doubts. When he brings these promises is every intention, every knowledge of the complete future. And he knows exactly whom he will establish his covenant with
1: all of your
0: offspring after you throughout their generations. So here God knows that this promise here that he gives Abraham, even though Abraham has to wait, this is an exceedingly expansive promise and an everlasting promise. It is an everlasting covenant. You know, oftentimes, you know, as we read uh, 12, 15, and 17, those chapters of Genesis, we're tempted to think that, uh, the blessings are the biggest deal here of this covenant. The blessings are important. But what's more important is the fact that God here is giving relationship to people. So when he commits himself to Abraham and is drawing, wanting Abraham to live by faith and not by sight, he's wanting him to not have faith in the, the blessings that he's going to get, but in the God that he serves, in God Almighty the God of the universe, the God who brings him out. Just look at all those stars and says, I just, I flung every single one of those into space. So I'm going to fling a baby into her womb. God hears is relationship here. It's relationship inherent with a covenant with God. This is El Shaddai, God Almighty, drawing near to Abram. And he says there, the word says, and I will be their God. In verse eight. I mean, that's fantastic here. He's going to vindicate his own name as he recreates his people as he causes them one day to walk by faith as he changes their hearts and I will be their God without doubt. He sees what Abraham can't see and Abraham is supposed to trust in him and to walk by faith and not his own sight but trusting in God's vision, God's sight, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his faithfulness. And even though this episode here takes place at the front end of God's plan of salvation history, of course, he already knows the end. So what he establishes here, he sees all the way straight through Christ and how Christ will be the ultimate fulfillment of the blessing to the nations because he alone can die on the cross bearing our sins. And that salvation then would be uh, spread out to the nations. So those are the promises that God reveals or reiterates to Abraham. What are the covenant requirements? Look here in verses 9 to 14. What are the covenant requirements? I'll go ahead and read that. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. So, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant so first thing to note here when it comes to the covenant requirements there are actual uh, expectations so obedience is commanded god had called abraham to believe now he says here now you shall keep in nine and ten it's it's mentioned two times you shall keep it those there there are actual expectations here what are the requirements specifically circumcision again this is kind of odd you know we're going to give basically an hour to talking about circumcision on a sunday morning uh so we got to address some basic questions so what is it it's the cutting and removing of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ As we look at this covenant confirmation requirement, we have to understand it, though, in light of God's intention to create a whole new people. Did you notice who should be circumcised? Look there, verse 12. He's creating a whole new people here. Abraham, Abraham is supposed to be circumcised and every male and then every man in Abraham's household. So everybody, all of the males from that day forward were to be circumcised and then also every male baby. Every male that would come from Abraham, Abraham's line. Okay, so why circumcision? Frankly, in Scripture, we aren't ever given a sort of total, um, full explanation. But there are explanations. So it could be a physical identifier. It would serve as an immediate physical identifier, identifiable sign, that that son is a son of the covenant. And remember here, this is tied to descent or seed. God is creating a whole new people. And so they're supposed to be distinct from every, everybody around them. And we do know that circumcision also was used in the, different, in the cultures around it. So this goes back a very long time. But they were, it was to be done a little bit differently for Israel. He was creating a whole new people distinct from others around them. For some, circumcision would be a test as to whether or not someone would join God's people. We can all understand, I'm sure. Thirdly, this could be a reminder of God's grace. That, that God has made this covenant serve as a visual reminder of his grace. That he keeps his covenant. And so when, when the, the child was eight days old after purification and things like that would be done, and the appropriate number of days would have passed for a woman who had newly given birth, the community would come around and gather, and when they would do this, this circumcision, they all should have been reminded that God is making a covenant with him. That that child too is brought into the covenant of of the community of God's people. It's also a reminder of God's judgment according to verse 14. So if you do not keep the covenant, that person is cut off from God's people. He's cut off from the community of God's people. Another reason, interestingly, God would come to use um, uh, circumcision in a metaphorical sense. So if circumcision amongst God, God's people meant dedication to Yahweh, God Almighty, if it meant belonging to the covenant community, if it meant consecration, be, then being an uncircumcised man came to mean the exact opposite. So later on in the Old Testament, when God's people were guilty of not loving God, even though they were in the covenant community, they were guilty of not loving God, even though they were outwardly circumcised, they were outwardly supposedly dedicated to serving God and consecrated to God's use. God says that they had uncircumcised hearts. So what he instituted here, he knew as God knows everything, he was going to use this thing to describe a heart that was not dedicated to God, a heart that rebelled against God. So if you were not consecrated to God, you might have also not only an uncircumcised heart, but an uncircumcised lip, uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised ears. So you see the spiritual significance behind the physical? There is a spiritual significance behind the physical that God was going to use here in this practice of circumcision. If your heart was uncircumcised, it was your heart that was not given over to God. Now, some of us are probably wondering as we look at verse 14, as we know that judgment was to be there, a cutting off was to be there if a man was not circumcised. So, so is he saying that we are saved somehow by works, that we are saved, that God himself is building a system of salvation by works? Because they, if they didn't do it, then they were entirely cut off from the covenant community for not walking before God, for not being blameless. This again brings us back to the spiritual reality behind or undergirding this physical sign. So I'm sure we would all agree, no doubt, that someone who refused to obey God's Almighty, God Almighty's command to be circumcised, if you're going to say, nah, not going to do that, you're showing a rebellious heart because this is God Almighty calling us to do this. If you don't circumcise your male, of course you are cut off from God's people because you yourself have an uncircumcised heart who is not given over to God. But we have to keep in mind, too, that equally true is the fact that just because you were circumcised didn't mean that you loved God at all. Circumcision did not guarantee salvation. Ishmael, later on, is circumcised. But yet we know that he was living against, his hand against his kinsmen. And and God's promise did not go with Ishmael, as we're going to see later on. So, circumcision never saved anyone. And a helpful reminder to to go back to a verse that can be really helpful is Genesis 15 6. And we've got to remember that Abraham was justified by faith. He himself was saved by faith before he himself was circumcised. So, Genesis 15 6 reads, And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Before he was circumcised, he was already saved, he was already justified. Romans 4 brings us up. Galatians brings us up. Men are, we are justified by faith, just as Abraham was. So what's going on here is summarized in our main point, our big idea for today. True faith always displays itself through obedience. True faith always displays itself through obedience. And you can go ahead and turn to James chapter um, 2 there. Now, some of you guys might say, oh, no, I think we are saved or justified through what we do, that we are saved by our works. And you might even quote James chapter two here. Some people even go so far to say, well, Paul says that we are justified by faith. And he points back to Abraham, who was justified by faith. But James, he contradicts directly what Paul teaches. And so they are at odds. And so scripture ought not be believed in. But that you should not believe folks who teach something like that. And you have to keep in mind here who, let's say, Paul was writing to when he was writing the letter of Galatians. He was writing to a church that actually believed that what you did, your works, could add to your salvation. And so he says, no, your works cannot add to your salvation. We are justified by faith alone. So on the flip side, you have here James, who writes to a community... ...that says, oh, I believe God, I just don't need to do anything about it. My faith, I can claim to believe in God of the heavens, but you know what, when it comes to my practical, ethical life, I don't really need to do anything. Those people are called antinomianism, or antinomians, they're against the law, they're against any doing. These people over here that Paul was writing to, they were legalists. We do certain things, we follow the law, and therefore, automatically, we earn for ourselves salvation... So they're writing to two different crowds here, which is why James is so clear in his letter, in chapter 2, for example. He says in chapter in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He goes on in his letter, and he says that even the demons believe they have right doctrine. You know, you can think of the stories in the Gospels where Jesus shows up on the scene, and there's some evil spirit who's possessed somebody, and those evil spirits says, who are you you are the holy one of god have you come to destroy us so right there they have all knowledge that this jesus is the holy one of god that he is god himself they have all knowledge that this jesus is going to judge them all knowledge that this jesus is going to destroy them so demons believe they have perfect doctrine much better doctrine than we have but yet they will die and perish eternally in hell that's what james is getting at. he said you have you share if you say you have faith but your faith isn't evidencing itself in any works he says you share the same faith as a devil himself can that faith save him the rhetorical answer given is absolutely not look there in verse 20 go down a few verses do you want to be shown you foolish person okay so there if any of us have say that we have faith but it's never working itself out in the ways that we obey god he calls us a foolish person here he says that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works that's the point there Faith was producing works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, that it evidenced itself that once you possess faith, it'll work itself out in works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here he quotes Genesis 15 as well. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis chapter 15. And many years later here. He is offering up Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God, but was already justified. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now again, what he's getting at is a dead faith, a faith that does not evidence itself in obedience. And he says, that is not faith. But he goes back and says, look, real faith, genuine faith produces works. And in so doing... We show ourselves to be justified. That's what he means. We show ourselves to be justified. We reveal our justification. And in that sense, we could say that we are justified by works. So we can think back. Paul, was, Paul said that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Here, James says too that Abraham was justified by faith. It was counted to him as righteous before He offered up Isaac on the altar. As one person put it, the covenant requirements circumcision of the flesh was of no spiritual value unless accompanied by a circumcised heart. The reality that it symbolized throughout salvation history, God made it patently clear that only the circumcised heart satisfies the conditions of the covenant relationship. So Paul and James are not at odds They're writing to two different groups of people, opposites. One says, Paul writes to those who believe that they can obey the law and be saved. James writes to people who say that I believe in God. I just don't have to do anything about it. I can live in sin if need be. And so he says, no, we are justified by faith, but your works evidence your faith. So having reiterated his promises to Abram and then changed his name to Abraham And then having stated the covenant requirements, God addresses Sarai's role in the situation uh, in 15 and 16 of chapter 17 of Genesis. I'll go ahead and read that. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations kings of peoples shall come from her same promises above but here just like abraham god changes sarai's name to reflect the covenant promises now it's not entirely clear where exactly sarai's name came from Uh, a name similar to that was basically a reflection of paganism from where she came from so if that's the case, God then is changing her pagan background and saying, look, from you, nations will come and peoples will come who will be my followers, who will worship God Almighty. And so he's changing everything. In another language common to that day, Sarai was also very similar to the name Sarah. So there it means princess. Sarai and Sarah both basically are uh, dialectical variants. So in different languages, you could use the same word and basically means princess. I found this uh, explanation useful. Um, if that is in fact this the, her name and it meant princess, this person says Sarah, her birth name probably looks back on her noble descent. Whereas Sarah, her covenantal name looks ahead to her noble descendants. Uh, we just don't know. So I'm not going to tell you what scripture is clearly saying because i can't abraham and sarah then here after this name change the couple that god was using to recreate his people now both have their names reflecting the covenant promises the realities that all of these people that are going to come from this barren couple all of them will follow this new lord this new king and have a new fundamental meaning for their lives they follow god almighty let's look at abraham's response here in verse 17 i'll go ahead and read that then abraham fell on his face so same action as we saw earlier in verse three he hears the words of god and he falls on his face but it doesn't seem to be at least in my opinion uh, the same with with the same worshipful attitude he falls on his face and then he laughs shall a child be born to me and then sarah now we're not too sure what kind of laugh this is is this you know a laugh of amusement Or is this a laugh that has a tinge of incredulity or disbelief towards this statement from God? Regardless, according to Romans chapter 4, we know that Abraham considered his body as good as dead. As well as Sarah's body, as good as dead. So I think they're thinking here, we can't produce anything anymore. We obviously are not going to be fruitful if I'm 99 years old and my wife is 90 years old. The solution, then, I think, backs up the fact that there is a tinge of disbelief here. The solution is, oh, that Ishmael, he's a perfectly good son here, perfectly good human being. whom You can bring your promises to. He can do it. Certainly he will do it. Now, why Abraham thought Ishmael uh, would have been a good candidate, a good representative, I'm not sure. He's already told that he's going to be a donkey of a man. A wild man craving independence so much so that it would strike up strife amongst his kinsmen. This year is a challenge for Abraham. He says, Look, there's a perfectly good human being here. And you know what that means. It means more waiting. He had just you know, he had just waited for thirteen years. Ishmael's thirteen at this point in time, and now God is saying, Look, you know, you're gonna do other things, and from those other things a child is going to be born. Here I think what's going on is Abraham might know and even worship God as El Shaddai, Almighty. But what God is doing in all of this waiting, he's teaching Abraham to really trust that God is El Shaddai, that God is the Almighty One. Same with Sarai. Look at God's response there in 19 to 21. God said no, no, But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear you at this time next year. A hundred years old. Abraham is still going to be fruitful. Sarai, Sarah at 90 or 91 is still going to be fruitful. It's important to note here that God's covenant does not go with all of Abraham's sons. Helpful for us to know, God's covenant does not go with all of Abraham's sons, but with a specific son. He says in 19, I will establish my covenant with him. As an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Ishmael, yeah, he blesses Ishmael. He says, I'm going to make him fruitful. He's going to multiply greatly. He's even going to father 12 princes. I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant, my promises, my relationship, my very own self is going to go with this son, Isaac, whom Sarah will bear with you, bear to you next year. One commentator noted here that Ishmael and Isaac and really Ishmael, the whole house of Abraham, Ishmael stands as almost like a parody to Abraham's house. Abraham would go on and eventually from his line, 12 nations would come from him. For Ishmael, 12 princes he would father. He too would inherit, Ishmael would would inherit a lot of people. He would be a father of many, just like Abraham But yet all of the spiritual blessings, all of the spiritual blessings, they go towards Isaac, God's chosen one. Do you see God's choosing here? And we know this all the way back from Genesis chapter 3, where there is a seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The one who follows righteousness, the seed of the woman, and the one who is fundamentally set against God. In Genesis chapter 6. Even though God looks out and sees that every intention of man's hearts were wicked, God, though, sets his grace on Noah and chooses to save him and his offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, even though Abram was of a pagan background, God, in his grace, decided to choose him and bring his promises to him. And here God is so determined to carry out his salvation plan to bless the world through a specific offspring. He chooses Isaac and not Ishmael and then we see it in the future too we can see it with abram's children isaac's children esau and jacob there god chooses jacob but here in genesis chapter 17 in choosing isaac god determined to bring not only a physical blessing in offspring and land but also spiritual blessing this is the way that god works and then we can flip to the new testament if we had time romans 9 we see that not all of The descendants of Abraham are brought into the people of God. But it's interesting, Ishmael, again, is circumcised. He is part of this community, but he is not of God's real community. That's the nature of Israel in the Old Testament. It was a mixed community. You could believe and you could not believe and you could still be Israel. And so there was evangelism going on in Israel. But then when we come to the new covenant established in Christ, it's very different. The new covenant there, God says, all of my people will have circumcised hearts. I will give them new hearts, all of them, my true community. And they will follow me. I'll put my law and my spirit in all of them. The last few verses from 23 to 27 here, we get to Abraham's obedience. So having seen God bring his word to Abraham again, having changed his name, having confirmed the covenant Having stated the requirements, having brought the promises again in Sarai's direction, what does Abraham do? The chapter ends with Abraham doing what every man and woman should do before God Almighty takes his word and he obeys them. I'll read 23 to 27, or 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. That's language for him going back up to the heavens after appearing to him. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Hard to imagine what that community was like after Abraham had delivered uh, what God had said. That was a very interesting day, I'm sure. Uh, But that but Abraham obeys. And that's what the focus is here. His obedience was immediate. He says, then, then he goes and circumcises people. That very day, and Abraham is 99 years old. Obedience is also total. So everybody that God commanded to be circumcised was circumcised. It was total. And then obedience was according to the word of God there. In verse 23, it was just as God had said to him. Just as God Almighty had revealed to him. So Abraham's going to take those words, and then he's going to obey them. Just as when God's word promises came to him, Abraham obeyed, or sorry, he believed. So here he's taking the words, and so he is obeying. His faith is being evidenced in his work. Faith here is undergirding all of his action and driving his obedience. So that's an explanation Genesis chapter 15. What does this have to do with us today, us as a New Testament church? A question, a logical question, should be if Abraham is our father in the faith, and we have that faith, should we be circumcising our children? I mean, let's set aside medical issues here. Let's talk about theology issues here. Ought we to circumcise ourselves as a sign of the covenant? The answer is no. So again, we're not talking about freedom here. We all have the freedom to do what we please when it comes to circumcision. I had a friend who converted to Christianity when he was 20 years old. He was a a Jewish man born and raised in uh, one of the Russian Federation countries. And he decided to follow in the footsteps of his father in the faith, Abraham. That's freedom. He's able to do that. But that doesn't require me to do it. Circumcision here was a sign of the covenant for Old Testament Israel, right? Is what we just talked about. You join the covenant community through circumcision. That does not mean that you are saved, It's not so for God's New Testament church, the New Testament community. Entry into the new covenant community is through being born again. That is possession of the spirit of Jesus. All in God's true church have been born again by the spirit. And this here is a biblical, this is biblical teaching. This is historical Baptist conviction. And this was in fact God's intention. So when he set up Genesis chapter 17, this confirmation of the covenant, he knew that in Christ he would establish a new covenant community. The only blood that needed to be spilled was Christ's. And as Christ gave and poured out his spirit on those people, according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the new covenant was inaugurated in Christ as he poured out his spirit. And as he first as he died on the cross was raised and then he poured out his spirit there, the new covenant community was taking shape. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. So in the new covenant, one did not have to be a Jew that is circumcised in order to be saved. Again, the new covenant community is marked by possession of the spirit. Naturally, we see this shift happening in the person and work of Jesus because in him is established this new covenant community. So in the book of Acts, you see the church working this out. And Al Molar, helpfully points people to Acts chapter 15. I think it's a wonderful example. We're going to go to others. But go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. Now to, to catch you up to speed about what's going on here. Lots of people are being saved. Jesus has been crucified. He has been resurrected. He pours out his spirit in Acts chapter 2. Fulfilling Joel's prophecy that says that All sorts of people are going to have the spirit and the gospel of salvation, too, is being carried out to the ends of the earth as there is salvation in no other name. But Jesus and God here is redefining his people. First, the peoples of the world will stream to salvation in Christ. Gentiles would receive the spirit, too, in a new and unique way in Christ. And then number two, all in the new covenant community have the spirit. Which is why you see in the book of Acts, it starts from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you see that the the disciples are going out in that pattern, spreading the gospel, and the Spirit is following the gospel as well. The Spirit's going to the ends of the earth, just as the gospel is, and in union with the gospel. So in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, and both are saved, okay? Both are saved. Now, keep in mind, we're asking the question is, should Gentiles be circumcised as a marker of entry into the covenant community? So naturally, the Jews are wondering, well, what's going on? We have Gentiles added to the number and we have Jews. And so look in Acts chapter 15, verse one, some Jews, you know, remember they're working this out. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders, to inquire, to talk, to discuss about this question. Skip down to verse number six. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. It's a big deal. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Now Peter is a Jew. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them, that is the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So that's the sign of the new covenant. The Gentiles have the Spirit. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you Putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So he's talking about circumcision. He calls it there a yoke on the neck, a burden. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Not by the law, not by circumcision but by grace through faith in christ and his work on the cross and james the brother of jesus the leader of the jerusalem church this is how he responds verse 19 therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the gentiles who turn to god but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols because they were wrestling things too right they were coming out of a pagan society a pagan background and embracing Jesus Christ. So they too needed to follow and obey God's command. Verse 20, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in his synagogues. He says, let the Jews be Jews, those who follow Jesus. That's their freedom. The Gentiles though, this yoke of burden, this trouble, if we put it on them, and in fact would hinder them, it would be a stumbling block to them. And according to Acts fifteen nineteen, because it is no longer necessary, the circumcision is no longer necessary because Jesus has circumcised their hearts by his spirit. In Christ, we all have the circumcision of the heart. That's spiritual realities, spiritual realities. It's why Romans 2.29 says circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Now, the reason why we're spending so long talking about this theological matter is because it can be so confusing here. But here it is not required. It is trouble. It is a yoke of burden. Circumcision, Paul says, is by the spirit. Another text. Colossians 2. Go ahead and turn there. This is a passage that we read earlier here, this young church was hearing false doctrine. And it seems to be that one of those false doctrines was that they needed to be circumcised. This is a, a Jewish and Gentile church. And Paul writes to them to stay the course. You trust in no one's work other than the work of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sins. Verse 11, he says, in him that is in Jesus Basically, having repented of your sins and having trusted in him, in him, you were circumcised. Okay, so whatever needed to be done has already been taken care of to not get cut off from God, from the people of God. But he says you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, how then do we get circumcised without hands? It's by putting off the body of the flesh that is sin by the circumcision of Christ. Having not been cut with hands, not by flint stones with the rest of the people, this new covenant community, but having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So those who are of the uncircumcision, if they believe in Jesus, they have spiritual circumcision. Those who would be dedicated to God, consecrated to God, Belonging to the new covenant community where all have the Spirit of Jesus. So if you have the Spirit of Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the covenant. Because remember, the covenant that Abraham had made with God, that God had made with Abraham, was fulfilled in Jesus. So we are all sons and daughters of the covenant. Those who, in the power of the Spirit, walk before God, as God calls us to walk before Him as His representatives. They would be blameless, generally speaking. So given that those in God's new covenant community are marked by possession of the Spirit, we as a church don't want to put the yoke of burden on other people. People who genuinely might desire to be saved. So if you're visiting with us today, you should ask yourselves, what is required of me to join the people of God? It's interesting, you know what, in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 2 He says that we have the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. So then a natural question is, does baptism save? Is baptism saving just because, you know, we get wet enough? Or some church particularly does something to us, maybe even when we don't have any faith. Does going through the waters of the so-called baptism save anybody? The answer is no. It reflects, according to uh, Romans chapter 6, a union with Jesus Christ. And so in his dying and, being, and receiving his spirit, we are united to him in his death, death to sin. And in his resurrection, we are united to him in his resurrection, un- uh, raised to new life, Romans says, Colossians 2 describes. That happens in reception of the spirit. A question then is what is the outward sign of the visible reality of having received the spirit? it's baptism in the new testament baptism is the outward visible sign that under that uh sorry that comes after that shows the inward reality that's why why jesus commands it he says if you have received the spirit if you have repented and believed you be baptized as a sign you know the thief on the cross he was not baptized but yet he was saved does this mean that we should throw away baptism Should we conclude that baptism, let's say, is a yoke upon our necks, a burden from those who want to be saved? Absolutely not. Why is that? Because you would be going against Jesus. Jesus commands all of his disciples to repent, to believe, and to be baptized. as a public declaration saying to everybody that I indeed am a son of the covenant. That I have been cut off from the realm of sin and raised to new life and in fact that i believe in him alone whose blood works powerfully enough who was indeed cut off for sinners who bore the wrath of god so that everyone who repents and believes would in fact be saved so what's the realities in your heart forget what you have done forget that you come to church every single sunday you read your word maybe you know seven days a week forget that you've been baptized What's the spiritual reality in your heart? Do you have the Spirit? A mark of having the Spirit is that you would fundamentally choose to... You would desire the things of God. That he would change your heart. That he would live a life like Abraham does. Yes, is it difficult? Yes. But we can live a life of faith. Not by sight. Even though sometimes our faith wavers. And yet trusting that God is a God who not only makes his covenant but keeps them. And especially... It sort of leads his plan of salvation leads up to the great climax of Jesus dying on the cross where God keeps his covenant. He fulfills all of his covenants in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin. The question is for you. If you're visiting, have you actually repented and believed? If not, repent and believe. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. 25 years later, he is obeying God very clearly here, choosing, showing that his faith is, or evidencing his faith through his obedience and following through with the covenant sign, the covenant of Abraham. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that any outward work is of no spiritual value unless accompanied by a circumcised heart. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your spirit, Lord Jesus, that you have poured out your spirit to circumcise our hearts, that we would be dedicated to you, consecrated to you, that we would belong to you. And we recognize, Lord, that it is your work alone that is powerful enough to do this. Lord, we thank you that your word says that you would put your law in our hearts, that you would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh and cause us to walk in your ways. Lord Jesus, we recognize that there is no work great enough, no work powerful enough, no work, no man faithful enough to win for us salvation. So Lord, we come before you as needy sinners in recognition that we cannot earn for ourselves anything, but that you, Lord Jesus, has earned for us everything. So cause our hearts to cling to you by faith. May we not walk by sight. And when we're tempted to move towards unbelief, may you present us with a grand vision of who you are. And may we be rock solid in what you have done so that we might continue to run this race of faith. In your name we pray. Amen.